Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meniga. In this episode, I talk with Cole Arthur Riley. Cole is the creator of Black Liturgies. She's also the recent author of This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Trey Pearson. Trey is a singer-songwriter from Ohio. You can get connected with Cole and Trey and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today I have Cole Arthur Riley with me. And uh, Cole, you are so incredible. You are the creator of Black Liturgies, which is uh, an account that I've been following for a while. Um, you just post the most incredible stuff. Uh, and also, like, all my friends are constantly sharing your stuff, too. Like, you're <laughs> you're definitely somebody that uh, I think a lot of people find a lot of inspiration in. And so I'm just really excited for this conversation. But in addition to that, you do lots of other things in the world. You also are the executive director for the Center of Dignity and Contemplation. And you just wrote an incredible book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make us. And that's the book that we're going to talk all about. And I'm really excited for it. But with that said, who is Cole Arthur Riley to Cole Arthur Riley? Um, well, to me, I am, I'm a reader. I, I spend a lot of my day reading. I'm a bit of a loner, you know, mm. not in the like completely dislocated way, more just, I enjoy my own company. And I enjoy silence. And I think more than most things, I identify with the word writer and artist. Black liturgies is kind of the most obvious, the way that the world kind of encountered me. But I I like to remind myself, you know, I was a writer for for a very long time since I was Mm -hmm. a little girl. I loved writing many different kinds of things. And so I'm just grateful that I'm able to do that and grateful that I was able to do it in a different way with this here flesh as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you in the Enneagram world by any chance? Um, I know that my Enneagram is five with oh, a, you're a five. four okay. wing. Or, I'm an Enneagram yeah. five with four wing. Yeah. What about wow. you? I'm I'm actually a four, five wing. So we're just like oh. kind of inverse. So, but I'm sure we kind of uh, present in the world very similarly in that case then. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. Did you have a suspicion about what my Enneagram would be? Well, you you kept talking about like reader, writer, artist. And I'm like, okay, there's definitely some four going on here, I'm guessing. <laughs> so I wasn't too far off then. Right. So speaking of the fact that you love to write, is this your like first published book? Yes, this is my first. Oh, my goodness. What does it feel like to have your first published book out in the world now? Oh, it it. it it feels good, but it is also, it's just terrifying. Yeah. I think there's something about a book that's, it's just a different kind of artifact, you know, and mm-hmm. like the, the physical, the kind of tangible nature of it. And uh, yeah. And in the book, I tell a lot of stories that I didn't necessarily think I would 
ever tell. And so it's just strange. You feel very exposed. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, yeah, totally. So with this being your first book that you've ever published, what did you learn about yourself while writing it? Maybe something that you didn't know that you maybe had within you. Sure. You know, I I learned a lot of things. I I I learned a lot about myself as just in terms of a a, a my practice. Instead of trying to, I I started off trying to fit the mold or what I thought was the mold of like a a writer, this kind of disciplined cranking out this chapter by this time, and and I realized it's just not really who I am. Like when it comes, it comes, and when it doesn't, it doesn't, and. I I try to write a little every day, but usually the things I write are for, I know I'm never going to share them, but this was, this was something where I really had to be kind of patient with myself. And then I would surprise myself and just in a day, I'd, I would, most of the chapters in the book, in the book I wrote in a day, except for maybe two that, that wow. were kind of grueling. I, and I surprised, I, I just didn't think that that was possible. <laughs> but that's who I am as a writer. It's kind of like a it happens in flashes. Yeah. yeah. Flashes of light. I, I actually really appreciate the fact that you were writing only when you kind of were inspired to write. That like it wasn't like, okay, here's my Saturday and I'm gonna do X amount of work on Saturday. Like you only did it when you felt inspired to, which again, I think kind of highlights that artistic nature uh, that's part of your personality and part of who you are uh, with kind of, you know, that Enneagram 4 type of thing going on um, uh, with your wings. So yeah, I love that fact uh, that this was a book that really came about in the way that an artist would create something in the world where it's just coming out of inspiration and not necessarily something that can be structured or kind of forced to happen, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I I don't know if you're familiar with Ocean Vuong at all. Mm-hmm. He wrote On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. He's a wonderful poet. He just had a book, a, a book of poetry, a collection of poetry come out called Time is a Mother. Yeah, one wonderful writer. But he he ta- I I was kind of I've always been very disciplined about writing, you know, a little each day, a little each day. And I've kind of through him seen how capitalism can kind of really just take hold of your creative practice mm, and can, and, mm-hmm. and and become more about output and productivity than kind of imagination and mm. curiosity. And so I'm thankful I I listened to a few interviews of his where he really pushed back against the idea of like writer's block. You know, he's like mm. that's a that's a that's a tool of capitalism. It's not mm. writer's block. You're just you just don't have anything to write. You know, it's not something right. you need to overcome. And I, I really took that that seriously. I'm 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 interested in his thoughts about that at least. Yeah. And so I knew, you know, maybe I'll still write a little every day, but to try to force this book out, you know, right. for what? You know? <laughs> um yeah. Right. Actually that really reminds me of an interview I was listening to with Andre three thousand from Outcast. And you know, yeah. Outcast hasn't been a band for like a couple decades now but Andre 3000 literally has not made any music since then and this interviewer asked him like you know do like do you even feel inspired to write music and he's like literally for the last 20 years I haven't gotten anything he's like I'll try and I just like I don't have any of it nothing Mm, but you're like he's not forcing himself to be an artist even though that like that's how people remember him and I love that Mm -hmm. like he's not kind of like uh he's not giving into that sort of like capitalist machine that's wanting him to like you know, because he knows 
if he put something out, like everybody would love it. But oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. but he's not going to force any sort of artistry out if he's not really feeling it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So obviously this book is very much like you telling stories, but there's so much rich and beautiful theology throughout it. Um, and I'm not sure like how much like research went into the creation of the book, but what did you learn maybe theologically while writing it that maybe you didn't know before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I didn't do, I didn't do really any, I mean, you're the first person that's asked me this. I didn't really do any theological research mm. at all for this book. I don't know. I don't know. Like that sentence just kind of hangs in the air. I'm like, huh, there's something maybe to there. You you know, I did do research, you know, through my family, but also like more in terms of blackness and black thinkers and black literature. I found myself kind of immersed in in black literature as I was writing. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see that in the book. A lot of the quotations are from black thinkers I respect. In terms of theology, you know, so I've I've never really thought of myself as like a theologian. I know people are like, yeah, everyone is a theologian. I'm like, ah, I don't actually, <laughs> that, wor- that word feels so like heavy and, you know, there's some kind of reverence maybe I feel for that, that word, I don't know, complicated feelings, but I'd been, I, I'd worked, you know, in ministry contexts with college students for I don't know, like nine years. And so I think maybe it was just like a nine year journey. Some of that theology working itself out as I'm talking to students and having to become mm. really honest about what I think, what I don't think, what I just have no clue about. You know, it was kind of by the time I went to write the book, maybe it was some kind of culmination of all those conversations with with students that helped me kind of flesh out some passages from scripture. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, again, speaking of theology, you opened the book with this great theological line that really struck out to me. And you said, some theologies say it's not an individual, but a collective people who bear the image of God. So my question is, why does the diversity of people reflect God more fully than if it was just like one singular human? Yeah. I mean, I I love I love this idea of like the multitude being mm. what is actually the image, the like the plural being the image. I think it, I mean, most obviously, I think it, it gets us away from binaries for sure by just like mm-hmm. confusing the notion of like the plural being contained in the one. I think there's something really queer and beautiful about that. Mm-hmm. And I also just don't think it's all that far off from what we you know, what many people believe about God being maybe if you have a Trinitarian view of who, who God is, it's, it's, it shouldn't then be unfathomable that Mm. God's image, their image should be also a multitude. I think it just kind of translates for me. I, I, I mean, do I know that this for sure? No, I hold most theology very loosely but Mm -hmm. do do i find that most compelling absolutely i've been immersed in experienced different cultures through friends through traveling you know for better or worse i've done things for better or worse to kind of understand other cultures and there's i think there are so many distinctives that when we kind of trace them back to the divine you know we're able to kind of perceive beauty and these really mundane rituals, these really, I mean, what seems ordinary to one culture Mm -hmm. becomes all of a sudden 
magnified and, mm-hmm. you know, miracle. And at least I, I want my spirituality to be about that, to be, yeah, not transcendent, but in particularity and diversity. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of something that I've read recently about uh, what is called in Lakota culture, the Lakota indigenous people, what they call the three sisters, which is corn, squash, and beans. And, and these are like the three staples of their, of their uh, diet and, you know, uh, even of their culture. And one of the things that I found so amazing about these three different plants is that when they're in the same like ecosystem, they actually all help each other grow and become more bountiful. And so, um, and so it's really interesting. Like if you see beans, corn and squash grow out in the wild, they'll usually be together. And there's something Mm -hmm. to be said about these three different particulars, but in relationship with one another, they create something they like, they help each other. They benefit one another. And I think there's Mm -hmm. something to be said about that of like how diversity theologically is something that actually magnifies who God is. And I think that is a reflection then of like who we are, that then when we're in, in right relationship with one another, that that also, that sort of diversity is really, really beneficial for us as a people group and even yeah. for non-humans as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. So you open the book that way and I think it's so great. Your second chapter is about place. And one of the things that I've been exploring over the last few years is that when I think about the Bible, I think of it as like this long story about a theology of place. I mean, so much of the tension and kind of issues that are presented throughout the Bible are these issues about place, like who can be in a certain place, whose place is it, how do you engage and navigate and inhabit a place, like all of those questions are really central, centralized around place. And so I'm really curious, why is place so important to forming us theologically and spiritually? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think if we go back to to Genesis and yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking of that, that line, that line from, oh, if I can't remember the the Pope, maybe I shouldn't say the line. Anyways, I'll say this. When we go back to Genesis and you have this kind of origin story, this very strange origin story of humans being made of, of dirt of the yeah. earth. I think there's that, I think that is so strange mm-hmm. <laughs> in the best way. Like wh- what does that mean? What, what, what does that mean if we believe in a spiritual origin that connects us Im- immediately connects us with the earth with the ground with mm-hmm. you know the things the, the things underneath us with with a sense of place i've always found that to be just really beautiful and mysterious and i think from there you're right we see that you know scripture traces exile and return and homecoming and the promise is a land and there's it seems to be you know for all our efforts of trying to divorce you know the human experience from you know our our surroundings and kind of to put you know humanity on this pedestal there seems to be this kind of i don't know tether in scripture that just keeps pulling us back to actually maybe mm-hmm. you're not the most important thing maybe your significance is in relationship to place actually whether it's dislocation or alienation or deep grounding and rootedness mm-hmm. or so anyways in terms of who i am i i i'm from pittsburgh 
born and for the most part raised. And I went to college in Pittsburgh, but to me, it felt like a real departure because just Mm. where I'm from in Pittsburgh is, you know, not many people go to college. So it was kind of like going to the strange new world Mm -hmm, (laughs) and mm -hmm. encountering people, you know, that felt very foreign to me, whose lives and wealth and language felt very different to me and I would go home on for like holidays and I would have these really intense I think most of us have experiences these really intense feelings when I was like going through the bridge and seeing my part of the city <laughs> again I would I, I I would have I mean nostalgia whatever you want to call it that kind of inner like whim it's not always happy it's not always sad but it's like I I I don't even know how to describe it and it was then that I started to realize man this place that however I feel about it it has done so much to me like parts of me are coming awake just by traveling back through the other side of the bridge like parts Mm -hmm. of me are coming alive and and memories are coming awake and and scents and smells and yeah I just think that's a really beautiful part of the human experience and as much you know so many of us are kind of inclined toward escapism, myself included. <laughs> and I think, you know, our call as humans is to kind of resist that escape escapism. You know, perhaps you need to escape in body, but to actually remember your formation and to, you know, to stay there, you know, but, but to recall it and to have mm-hmm. this practice of recollect, recollection, I think is important, at least mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, absolutely. So your book is largely about embodiment. I think right before we started recording, I was telling you a little bit about how I just wrote my thesis all about embodiment and why it's so important, I think, even for our theology. Um, And you even have a chapter about the body. Uh, And so I'm curious, how has embodiment changed and shaped your spirituality and theology over all these years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, in, in college, my my spirituality was kind of completely a practice of the mind it was this like you know very serious intellectual pursuit and it had to be because i had kind of adopted the the white supremacist mindset of like my religion can't just be good or meaningful it has to be right you know mm. it has to be supreme and so it became this very sad <laughs> a very sad kind of like exile into my mind, my my spirituality. And I was already prone to this, if I'm honest. As a child, I was very in my my own head and wasn't great at, you know, being attentive to my body. But I think spiritual spaces, specifically white evangelical spaces, definitely amplified that. Mm -hmm. And I found myself wanting to kind of belong to white intellectual spaces, like many young people just wanting belonging. And so it, it's been a real work, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm grateful. I've said this before, but in that kind of strange new place <laughs> of the University of Pittsburgh, I was also attending classes, English classes and encountering black literature for the first time and mm. the spirituality of black literature, which to me, you know, when I read Morrison, when I read Zora Neale Hurston or Alice Walker, the spiritual the spirituality that their books contained was so bodily, was so mm-hmm. just earthy, you know, and mysterious. And was their intellect absolutely, but was it captive to intellect? No, there was so much mystery. And so I think 
you know, the only way I was able to survive, probably I'm so grateful to this was that what I was hearing in church on Sunday, I wasn't, I I couldn't completely divorce from what I was hearing in the classroom. And so I I always had, you know, the voices of Morrison and Baldwin, like interrogating this disembodied spiritual existence that maybe was occurring in a church pew. So it, it, it started there, but it's been slow going. And I, you know, I talk about this in the book, but I've been chronically ill for six or seven years now and had to have to had to myself really contend with how serious I take myself, how serious I take my flesh and my body because I can't afford not to anymore. Mm-hmm. And that also has been maybe a catalyst toward this like embodied liberation. It's, it's, it's growing though. I think every month, every year it's growing <laughs> this kind of um, sense in me that I won't survive if my spirituality doesn't include my body. I love that you bring out the fact that, you know, so much black literature like Alice Walker, Toni Morrison and others have this really embodied or express this very embodied spirituality. And it reminds me of like the difference that you see in like white Christian spaces versus black church spaces of like how embodiment is embedded in their spirituality. I mean, like the like I grew up in the in the white uh, Christian white evangelical world. And like the extent of our embodiment was at, like at a church service was maybe just like standing up and sitting back down. Like that might yeah. be about it. Whereas like at black church services, there's dance, there's so much movement, even in the Pentecostal world, like there might be even running back and forth in the sanctuary too, right? Like there's so much more embodied activity happening in, in their spirituality. And I think there is something to be said about th- that being a way for Um, people of color and and certainly black folks in those traditions to be embodied in their own bodies and how, and for white Christians who are totally not engaging in embodied activities in their, in their worship, that like that divorces them from their embodiment and which I think continues to then perpetuate their own white supremacy, their embodied white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I completely agree that you know, that, that distance, that, that distance, it's not by accident. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it, what, what would, what would you find, you know, what would a white person find if they really attuned to their own body or really was aware of the work that their body was doing in a space without them even knowing it. And I think for trans bodies, for people of color, you know, we've had to for for black bodies we've had to we've had to pay so close attention to how mm. our bodies operate in a, a space whether that means shrinking them so they seem less threatening whether that means you know trying to seem uh, putting a smile on so you don't seem angry you know mm. all of these things mm. we've had and we've had to attune we've had to do the extra work of attuning to white bodies and mm-hmm. and understanding the threat of a white body and mm-hmm. how it's moving and is it agitated there's so much awareness that i think generationally has been built into our lived experience that whiteness just hasn't accessed hasn't hasn't tapped into and i i wonder you know you know i i have white friends i'm married to um a white man and you know what happens when you actually listen what will you hear <laughs> So kind of along those lines, one of the things that seems to be, I don't know if trending is the right word, but over the last couple of years, there have been so many books about like anti-racism. And a lot of those books have become bestsellers and everything. And I think for a lot of people, especially a lot of white people, there is this like acknowledgement or recognition of like 
systemic racism and that you know racism isn't just like this personal interaction between individuals but that there's this systemic and institutional racism but one of the things that i think a lot of white people especially miss is that racism doesn't just exist personally it doesn't just exist systemically but it actually in- exists within bodies mm-hmm. and recognizing that and then working through that is extremely important. And so, you know, you t- you have a chapter on fear, you obviously have a chapter on injustice uh, or justice and injustice. So, yeah, something that I've learned over these last few years then is that fear and injustice and trauma can exist and live in the bodies. Um mm-hmm. and so even even like fear and injustice that like gets passed down from bodies of previous generations even. Um and so, yeah, I'm kind of curious then like for from like you know, how you think about it, like, how do you think we could heal from this embodied fear and injustice that really actually lives in our bodies? Yeah, I mean, I think healing is probably different depending on what your body has endured, you know. So, and I've I've learned to try to be really particular about this because I think the stakes change that, you know, yeah, I think the stakes change. So for example, for someone who's chronically ill, you know, this, this call to, to listen to the body, like, are you like, are you sure you want to ask a chronically Mm -hmm. ill that, that comes at a cost, you know, when I, every time I attune to my body, you know, that means I'm realizing that my hands are hurting and, you know, and my, my neck is tight and, you know, to become aware of my body is, Mm. it has a different, it just has a different stake. I could say the same about, you know, bodies who've been silenced. I can say the same, you know, bodies who've been silenced. Maybe that looks like practicing your voice more, but not everyone has had that experience. Maybe some people are so exhausted in their bodies that their healing comes when they actually become silent and allow mm. themselves to 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 rest and to not have to speak and not have to teach. So, yeah, I think the the healing in the body, it's 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 probably gonna look distinct depending on what you've lived through, but it's absolutely necessary. It's a good thing that you're pointing out. And I'm I was thinking of that a Ta-Nehisi Coates quote where he's I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know, all of our language, never forget all of our language, the regressions, the the graphs, the charts, you know, the statistics, all of these things fall heavily on the body. Mm, mm-hmm. forget and it's so easy to kind of separate them into this you know uh into the systemic now that we've got that down right now that mm-hmm. most people are not most but now that many people are ready to contend with systemic racism okay well let's not un let's not disconnect that from the fact that who's behind that chart mm-hmm. who's behind mm-hmm. that graph you know real lived experiences are on the other side of that system um so yeah anyways i think it's a it's a good question to ask. And yeah. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply? Or are you called to ministry, but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship, 
And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. You're also an incredible storyteller. I loved you. your stories throughout your your book. And obviously, you know, it, this is a book about stories. You just have so many great stories to tell. How is storytelling essential to spirituality? Hmm. Well, you know, for me, like it was the stories of the of a, a Christian tradition of of the Christian text. Um, it was the stories that I was drawn to initially. I just think there are such, um, if we talk about the, the Bible for a second, I haven't picked up my Bible. And, <laughs> but if we talk about, there are such beautiful stories. Like I, I, you know, there's something of a reader in me that found so much, I mean, it's complicated. Nothing's clear. Nothing's mm-hmm. tied up. Nothing's neat. It's like, what is happening? You don't know who's good, who's bad, who's, you know, these are, it's, it's, it's complicated, nuanced storytelling, which I really appreciate about scripture, you know, whether or not I'm able to actually interpret those stories is another thing, but it's the stories themselves that I found so compelling because it, it felt very human to me, you know, mm-hmm. it didn't feel complete. It, it didn't, it didn't feel fake. It didn't, when I encountered it by myself, it didn't feel fake. If you read the Bible without, you know, someone hovering over your shoulder I think it rarely feels like indoctrination you know it didn't feel like indoctrination until I found myself you know actually in in church and in the presence of pastors yeah desperate desperate pastors so all that to say I'm very pro-story in scripture but I think you know even for people who aren't Christian or aren't from a a faith tradition that has you know kind of culture of storytelling I think we just see this in the human experience, right? If you if you trace if you trace us back, we just we just can't escape it, you know. Mm-hmm. We can't escape passing down what's happened and also making shit up. <laughs> you know, making mm-hmm. and 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 not making it up to make it up, but these beautiful myths that that have been inherited and passed down and this create this this imagination this imagination for what has never happened, but in some way, it's still sp- it's still able to speak to what has happened. I think, yeah, that's just I, I'm this isn't an original thought by any stretch of the imagination, but I think storytelling is just core to what it means to be human. And so, how can I, you know, how can I have a spirituality that's completely disconnected from my own story, disconnected from the stories that have formed me? When I went to write this year, flesh, I really didn't think. I wasn't factoring in story at all. I, you know, my outline, it it wasn't, it didn't have in mind that I would be approaching the stories of me, my father, or my grandma. And our stories end up being central in the book. But, I, you know, when I went to write, I just couldn't, <laughs> I, I just kept finding myself like a little bit wordless, you know, a little bit wordless without 
grounding what I wanted to say in the stories that had formed me, which maybe just says a little bit about who I am as a writer or maybe a daughter and granddaughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of a couple of days ago, I was doing that thing that we all do at some point where we just keep going through Netflix and are scrolling through and browsing through and we just can't find a show that we want to watch or a movie that we want to watch. And so we end up basically going through like literally every title in Netflix. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like, there are thousands, hundreds, if not thousands of movies and shows and Netflix. and each one of these probably costs millions of dollars to create. And I just like couldn't believe I'm like, this, and this is just like the tip of the iceberg of what is actually out there for just movies and, and, and TV shows. And I'm like, mm-hmm. this just, I think, indicates that we crave stories. We want to be a part mm-hmm. of these stories. We want to see ourselves in these stories. So whether it's from like The Office to Avatar or whatever, like every movie on Netflix, I'm like, at some point, somebody was like, I want to connect that story. And that's why it's on there. And I just like could not believe how much there was out there. And it's because we just want to connect to all these different kinds of stories. And I just find that really, really interesting. And we obviously do that within religion and elsewhere in our culture. But I just found that really, really fascinating. There's just so much out there because there's so many stories that we want to tell and share and be a part of. Yes. And there's such an appetite. Yeah, there is. So at the end of the book, you have a chapter about liberation. I'm really interested in, you know, share only so much that you want, but how have you experienced liberation lately? I mean, writing the book in and of itself felt like this, I don't know, really meaningful season of liberation because, I don't know, religious spaces have a way of making you claim beliefs that you don't truly believe or say things that you don't truly believe so that you can achieve some form of belonging and when I started to write I don't know it kind of felt like a homecoming because like I said I've been writing since I was very little so I was feeling nearer to myself than maybe some of these forms of belonging that didn't really feel all that true to me so anyways, I, I, when I write, I, I feel kind of haunted by the, my future self, but not like near future, like old. Like I think of myself like on my deathbed often. <laughs> I think, you do that like too? I do that all the time. Or like your funeral. Do you like replay your funeral like in your imagination ever? I've never done that. I'm always curious, like who would show up? What would happen? I'm like always curious about that. now I probably will be thinking about that but (laughs) no I think about you know myself in my deathbed or like my 60 year old self my 50 year old self and looking back at what I've written and I feel such an allegiance to them um, Mm -hmm. and wanting to make them proud and I know it sounds strange but as I was writing I just kept thinking you know what will what will I think about this, you know, in, in 30, 40 years? Will I stand behind this? Because I've written things before that other people have celebrated. And then in 10 years later, I think, what a lie. Mm. Like, what a lie you just wrote. And it felt good in the moment because other people, it moved them emotionally. But was it true? So anyways, when I wrote this Your Flesh, I made this kind of vow to myself of like, if you just tell the truth, Cole, 
and and not the big T truth. You know, I'm not trying to evangelize or you know claim any like absolute truth, but the truth. Uh, tell the truth as much as you can with the information you have and the life that you've lived. If you do that, you know, even if you change your mind, even if you're miles away from many of the stances or beliefs in this book by the time you're 60 at least I can look back and and and, and feel proud you mm. know and and feel like I was a an a artist with integrity mm. so I I I say all that because writing I had to become really honest and you know you'll see the book is just riddled with maybes and perhapses right, right. and you know and 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 that would an editor's nightmare but to me i'm like that that's the truest thing it's right. like maybe uh <laughs> or i don't know or you know if there is a god and, and and i i really had to yeah i really had to become honest with myself about what i think and in doing that i felt so liberated and so near to myself that oh, it's just so liberating when you're not faking it that kind of piece of liberation it really reminds me of like when we talk about our truths, like you hold it so lightly. Uh, like you said, you you have the kind of like, if God exists, maybes. Uh, you even talk a little bit about that you don't necessarily believe something theologically. You find it compelling. And I love the way that you hold something really lightly in that way. Like you, you hold it with kind of a, a light opened hand. And I kind of wonder how liberation and holding some of these things lightly without having to know the absolute truth there must be something of like how that connects to liberation by like holding yeah. something lightly in that way yeah i mean to, when, when when i think about that you know holding it lightly holding it loosely and still taking it seriously that to me is mystery that that's mm. that that to me is this embrace of of the unknown and and to to me, mystery is such a form of liberation, such a form of liberation when I don't want to say everything around us, but there's so many just social currents that are telling us that we need to know, that we need to know what we think, that we need to know why, that we need to, there's always this kind of like, you know, we need to prove it. We need to, it's, there's so many kind of demands on you know, not just our spirituality, but our existence in general to allow something to be mysterious and fluid mm -hmm. and imprecise, I think is such a form of liberation. And maybe it has to do with the fact that if you're holding something loose, that means it's not captive to you. You know, it's not captive to my, it's liberation for the idea, for the thing. And it's, it's my own liberation as well at stake when we like kind of cling so desperately to these, yeah, very narrow opinions, very narrow perceptions of the divine, like, what are we doing? But ultimately holding the divine captive. I don't, I don't want to do that. And and when I release and kind of allow for some, for miss some mystery and some breathing room, I, I feel like I'm also breathing a bit deeper, you know, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. not, I'm resting for sure more. Yeah. 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 I mean, like to kind of go back to the beginning, the beginning of the conversation and talking about diversity and the way that humanity and the world reflects um, diversity in the image of God. And I kind of wonder, you know, a lot of people say, like, I know that God is the triune God, like exists in the Trinity. And mm -hmm. for me, I'm, I don't know. But also what I find compelling about it is that, like, 
within God's self that there's like multiple persons and there's this multiplicity Mm -hmm. and diversity that exists within God's self. And then that's reflected in the world. I don't know if it's true, but I find it compelling, like that Mm -hmm. idea. And so, yeah, there's something to be said about like finding something compelling as maybe more compelling than knowing something for certain. Yeah, yeah certainty it's not really i mean there are people who i really believe are more just like wired for certainty i some of my friends for example i'm like they're just they're they're just able to believe (laughs) and i think we need those people but i also think those people need us and and Mm. they need the experience and, and the voice of people who just yeah, or more in touch with the un- the unknowing, the unknowableness of of God. I think, yeah, we 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 probably can kind of ground each other. <laughs> but yeah, certainty. I'm just not in. I'm, it's just not. I'm just not interested in it. Um, right. Like, can you find? Can you be drawn to a thing? Like you said, compelling or these language of can you be drawn to an idea? Can you be drawn to a story and find meaning in it without needing to muster? like total belief in it on any given day you know yeah and i think we end up excluding so many people or kind of losing so many people because we're desperate for the like proclamation of belief as opposed to let's like become curious about this idea or the story together and see if we can find meaning in it yeah and i think the beauty of black liturgies is that you open up that mystery you allow for those who are engaging with black liturgy to to really be compelled by the sacred rather than like having to know, you know, that they're engaging this liturgy in a way to know for certain about the sacred in the world. But you're really just opening up, inviting people to be compelled, to be drawn to, to find that beauty in the sacred. Thank you. I hope so. Thank you. Well, speaking along those lines, then, how do you hope this here flesh inspires and liberates its readers? Hmm. I hope that readers just become closer to their own stories in reading and really curious about the stories that have formed them like throughout mm. generations. You know, I, I, I might say this in the book, I can't remember, but like that, it would feel real wind to me if someone like closed the book and just felt closer to themselves um, or more interested in, you know, in articulating or preserving, you know, stories and, and artifacts. I guess I also would hope that it would, you know, give people the courage to kind of pursue a spirituality that makes sense for them and and Mm. feels real and caring and tender to their stories and their bodies and stories that live in their bodies. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's so beautiful. Last question, Cole. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Um, I have a website, colearthorreilly.com, where you will also be led to any social media that you care about. <laughs> you can follow me through there. Yeah. Where can people find the book? This Year of Flesh. It's available anywhere books are sold. Yeah. If you buy it from a local, you know, independent bookstore, I will be extra happy and grateful. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Cole, thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about the book and your work. I just love it so much. Obviously, this is work that a lot of people really care about. And I'm really grateful for your voice and your thoughtfulness and sincerity and also your your capacity 
to really be drawn to the mystery in the sacred. I just, I think it's so beautiful. And so thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about it. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. Yeah. Nice to meet you. If you would like to connect with Cole and Trey and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Oh,